Hello, and welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm your host, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. Listeners know that this podcast is focused especially on American constitutionalism beyond the four walls of the Supreme Court. We're interested in constitutional norms, traditions, and institutions. As it happens, someone who's given a lot of thought to institutions in recent years is my colleague here at AEI, Yuval Levin. In January, Basic Books published his study of American institutions titled A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. But he's also in the business of building and maintaining institutions. He founded National Affairs, the policy journal that just celebrated its 10th anniversary, and he joined AEI last year to build a new research division, of which I'm proudly a small part, called the Program on Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. Yuval, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. And as always, we're joined by our colleague, Tal Fortgang. Hi. Hi, Adam. So Yuval, before we jump into talking about the book, let's talk a little bit about this program that you've yeah, created and, and invited me and others to join the Program on Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. Where did you come up with the name? Well, as you can tell from the subtitle of my book, I like long names. You know, in a sense, the, the program is intended to make the study of the health and integrity of our institutions an explicit subject of inquiry in the think tank world. And that means both the institutions that are upstream of politics, like family and community, religion, civil society, and the institutions that are really the infrastructure of our politics, the Congress, the presidency, the judiciary, the parties, and so that extends to more than just politics. It extends to more than just constitutionalism. It really is about our society, our culture, and our constitution. And that's where the name comes from. Obviously, I like the name since I'm here also. But one thing that struck me about it is, as a lawyer who's been involved in policy, oftentimes I find myself telling people, before you could talk about a policy, you need to think about whether the policy is constitutional. One thing I like about the, the name of our division is, the Constitution comes at the end of the line. Right. Right. So we're thinking about what comes That's right. before that. And it really speaks of, a, of an idea of how society works. So the social and the cultural do precede the political and the constitutional. And they make it possible. They're also protected by it and enabled by it. But I do think it's important to begin at the beginning. And that often means starting before politics. Yeah. And that's not to say the Constitution changes its meaning in light of changes in society or culture absent no, right. an amendment. But of course, the original constitution itself was shaped by the society and the culture yeah. in which it was created. And in a lot of ways, the constitution creates a space and allows us to fill that space. And what we fill it with is the substance of our political culture and our larger culture. And so certainly the meaning of the constitution doesn't change. But what we are able to do within the framework of the constitution, that's what our, that's what our culture is all about. Well, what do you mean? Well, this is, a, I know, a, a phrase or a metaphor you use a lot, creating space. What, what do you mean yeah. by the Constitution creating space? I think of the Constitution not as filling the space in which our society lives, but as guarding that space, as creating room for people to live in a free society, to engage in the lives they want. The Constitution establishes some boundaries, some rules, some norms, but it doesn't tell us what to do in the everyday life of our country. It gives us a lot of freedom. And it protects that freedom. It creates a space. I would say the, the language of space is really essential to conservative political thought. And what you find very often is the language of progressive politics is a language of motion, of movements and progress. The language of conservative political thought is a language of space, of, of room to thrive. It creates space in another sense, too, that the, the structure of government, the process, it slows things. It creates a space for negotiation 
yeah. compromise and deliberation. As our other, another one of our colleagues, Greg Weiner, the metaphor he used in one of his really great books, Madison's Metronome, mm-hmm. right, was the metaphor of, of timing, which is a right. space in a sense. It creates space for things to be deliberated on and thought about yeah. before there's a policy resolution. You know, it's, that's one of the things that institutions in general do for us. They yeah. create a process, a tempo, a pace, a mode of deliberation that has a certain formal structure and order. And that is enormously liberating because it, it helps us not have to think about the fundamentals the preconditions and the architecture, and instead make choices, make judgments. And so it's enormously important to have that kind of formal structure framework. But what it allows us to do is to be free. Well, let's talk about institutions then, the subject of your new study. What, is, what do you mean by institution? What's an institution? Yeah, the term is obviously very capacious. And once you start to look into how it's defined in various academic ways, what you find is, of course, naturally, that there's not a lot of agreement about exactly what it means. I take an institution to mean institutions are the forms of our life together. They're the structures, the shapes of the things we do together. And the form is defined and moved by a purpose. It speaks of a structure. It organizes the substance. But ultimately, it's its own thing. The institution, you know, some institutions are formal and are sort of corporate, like a company or a military unit or a legislature. Some institutions are much less corporate than that, much less formal than that, but they still are the forms of what we do together, the family, the rule of law. We call these institutions because they give a certain structure to something very important that society does. And I think ultimately, broad as that is, it's very important for us to see that our society and our social life actually consists of these structures that that's what it means for us to live together in society. We have a way as Americans of just seeing right through institutions, of treating them as invisible, imagining they're not there. It's a a wonderful thing when our institutions are strong because it lets us imagine that we're even more free than we really are. But when our institutions are weakened, as I think they are now, it's dangerous not to have a vocabulary that lets us understand what they are and what they do because it's hard to know what to fix and where to rush in and try to heal when we don't really understand the way our institutions help us out. Well, we're a country full of institutions. What is it about this moment that spurred you to to write a book pointing out how... how, how Well, there are a number of reasons. The kind of social crisis that we're living through now has been defined for a long time by a loss of public confidence in institutions across the board, public and private, civic and political economic and social, Americans are losing trust in most of our major institutions. And I think that forces you to ask, what does that actually mean? What is trust in an institution? Why do we trust an institution? I think the answer to that roughly is that institutions don't just perform important functions in our society. They also form the people within them to perform those functions reliably, honorably, in a trustworthy way. We trust an institution when we think that it forms the people within it to be trustworthy. And so, you know, the reason we trust the military, is not just that it's good at, at defeating our enemies, though it is, but that it actually produces a kind of human being that we think takes certain ideas of honor and duty and country seriously. The reason we might trust a corporation is because it seems to foster among its people some kind of culture of integrity and honesty as it provides a service that we want. The reason we might trust a political institution is that it seems to be moved by some kind of ethic of public good and, and public interest. 
a loss of trust in institutions suggests that we have come to think that our institutions don't produce that kind of ethic, don't shape people that way. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, not only in a simple sense, in the sense of a kind of familiar corruption, that sometimes institutions just fail to form people to be honest and reliable and trustworthy. That kind of corruption is always there. What we see now that's a little different is that our institutions aren't really trying to form people. They're not acting as molds of character for people. They're acting as platforms for performance for people. So a member of Congress might have been shaped to be a certain human type once. A member of Congress now is more inclined to look at Congress as a platform to be seen, to be heard, to be on cable news, to be on talk radio, on Twitter, to be another performer in the kind of reality show culture war that our politics is becoming. And the more that our institutions play that role, the harder they are to trust. Well, it seems to me that in, in the modern technological environment, modern economy, modern communications, people tend to use established institutions as platforms in general. They don't yeah. expect a long-term relationship with the company they work for or the town they live in or the university where they were schooled. And so the question is, what can I get from this as a platform over a year, two, four years before moving on to mm -hmm. the next thing? So on the one hand, it seems that it's very much part of our times. On the other hand, any conservative has to ask, well, the ills that we see today, are these truly new? Yeah. Or is this just a different iteration of a problem we've always seen? So do you think the, the, the modern economy, modern technology is significantly exacerbating this problem? Or is this just another iteration of a familiar problem? Well, I think it's significantly exacerbated and, and in some new ways. Now, it's certainly not an entirely new problem. In fact, in some ways, Americans in particular have always inclined to downplay the importance of institutions, even though... We are, we are great institution builders as a practical matter. We've always had this idea of, of authenticity as directness. We, we're, our culture is a Protestant culture, no offense to Catholics. Um, and it tends to identify mediation with some kind of oppression and unmediated directness is taken to be what authenticity means. And so we've always resisted mediating institutions in some ways. But I do think that the tendency to treat institutions as performative platforms, as ways to be seen, really is something relatively new. And it's part of a larger transformation of our expectations in American culture. It's tied up with changes in technology, the rise of social media and the internet, but it's also a function of a kind of general fragmentation away from a broad mainstream consensus in American life and toward a more fragmented idea of how American society works so that we each think of ourselves as our own celebrity in our own little world. And now increasingly, again, in the age of social media, we each function as kind of our own paparazzi, hounding ourselves, taking away our privacy for the sake of some kind of bizarre publicity. It becomes easy to think of the institutions we're part of, professionally, civically, politically, as just platforms, as just places to be seen, places where we'd like to be photographed, saying what, what we want people to hear us saying. And that causes us to forget that what our institutions do for us is that they form us. We don't enter the world ready for the responsibility that's involved in being a citizen in a free society. We have to be shaped by institutions for that responsibility. And if we don't let them shape us, then we aren't going to be very good at the kinds of things that we now all feel like we're missing. Affinity and loyalty, affiliation, having a place, having a connection. We're living through a crisis of isolation that I think has to do with this degradation of institutions. Now, your book has me thinking of another familiar challenge to institutional thinking in America, one that's definitely not new. 
before you can have an institution, it has to be instituted. Mm -hmm. And Americans are very good at foundings, and there's something very exciting about founding new things. It's a lot more fun to create something great than to be the caretaker of something great. And, yeah. and this, is, this is something that Abraham Lincoln yes. worried about. How, how, how does that aspect of uniquely American culture and, yeah. and character challenge institutional thinking? It's a very interesting question. This challenge of perpetuating our institutions really does make you think of Lincoln. His first real public speech, the Men's Lyceum speech, when he was 27 years old, was explicitly directed to this question of, of perpetuating our political institutions. I think in some ways you could say all of his major public speeches were actually about that subject. Certainly the Gettysburg Address, for example, is about mm -hmm. that subject. And it is a constant challenge for our country because we're always moving forward. We value the startup. We value the innovator and the founder. And it, it can be a lot harder to sustain. It's especially so now when we tend to think of, of ourselves as each kind of possessed of our own brand. And the work we do in our, in our lives is about building that brand. And again, that encourages us to think about institutions as just ways of promoting our brand yeah. rather than, than as ways of forming us to act together and to live together and to do things together. So there's no question that a, an institutionalist mindset about American life runs against the grain of our contemporary culture. But I think that's exactly why it's needed. We're living with a social crisis that has been hard to define. When we struggle to define it, we reach for various kinds of individualist explanations. We look to the economy. We ask whether people are as healthy as they might be, as safe as they might be. We think about whether there, are, there could be ways to level the playing field or build bridges. All of these assume an idea of American society as this big open space where there's lots of individuals and they're having trouble connecting. I think the big open space of American society is actually filled with institutions. And if we don't see those, then we don't really understand what it is to live as a free citizen and to do things together with others. And so the purposes of this book is really to make these invisible things a little more visible and help us think in these terms a little bit more. Just a few minutes ago, you said that our institutions aren't really trying to play that role in the way that they used to. Of course, the, the institution itself is a, is a form or a community or something. It, it, institutions are led by people. Yeah. As you said, institutions are what we do together. What is it about the modern generation or recent generations of institutional leaders that's left them less interested? Because if nothing else, the people leading institutions are the ones best in place to use those institutions to try to form yeah. people in the right way. You'd think that institutions in some way would be self-perpetuating if only because the people with the people leading an institution have sort of their own self-interest in perpetuating the institution. Well, I think what you find very often is that it's exactly those people who are most who are most focused on building their own brand at this point and on seeing the institution as a platform for themselves. So they don't they don't see the value of the constraints that institutional responsibility places on them. Institutions are enormously valuable to the elites of any society because they legitimate authority. Mm -hmm. But they do that by constraining elites. They do that by helping the larger public see and believe that what the elites are doing is in the service of an important goal. And what the institution does is really direct their work toward that goal. When instead we think about institutions as just presenting us or promoting us, displaying us, then we don't see the, we don't see the elites of our society constrained at all. And that makes it harder to trust them. 
it it exacerbates the kind of populism that defines this moment. I think it contributes enormously to that populism. It seems to me that American elites today don't see what they lose by not investing themselves in institutions as they ought to. We're going to talk a lot about constitutional and governmental institutions in just a minute, but just talking about institutions generally, what's the path back towards yeah. institutional thinking in America? Well, obviously there's no easy answer. And, you know, books like this always have a disappointing last chapter where you offer <laughs> solutions and you reach the end and you sort of turn pages to see, well, where's the rest? And so let me disappoint you in this particular way. I think that as a practical matter, the answer actually begins by asking the great unasked question of our time in American life, which is, given my role here, how should I behave? I think that if you ask yourself in a moment of decision, not just what do I want, what would look good, what do people want me to do, but given my responsibilities in this particular place, given that I am a teacher or a principal or a police officer or a member of Congress, how should I behave here? That question is the first step on the way back. That's the question that the people who drive you crazy in American life are clearly failing to ask. It's the question that the people who you most respect are clearly asking before they act. And I think we just have to remind ourselves, each one of us, because we all have roles to play in various institutions in our lives. We have to remind ourselves to ask that question before we act. And I think that is the beginning of a path back to responsibility. Now, there are also things that have to be done in terms of institutional reform. And the book takes up a series of examples from institutions of government to the professions and media and social media and the academy. I think in each of these places, there are different ways to think about reform. But we need in each of them a kind of party of the institution that says that our integrity is dependent on the integrity of this larger whole. And we have to ask ourselves, given the responsibility we have, how should we behave? You know, some institutions that we are a part of are freely chosen and some are not, right? Family is an institution yeah. you are born into or, or taken into a family, most likely before you had any say in the matter. Mm -hmm. Some of them are freely chosen, obviously, where you, where you go to work what line of work uh, you go into, maybe where you go to school and yeah. so on. In a way, the institutional, respect for institutionalism has to precede your choice of yes. institutions. For the I think that's right. And I think the, the distinction between those things is not nearly as stark as we might imagine it is. Mm. I don't think what matters most about an institutional obligation is whether it was freely chosen or not. Mm. I think what matters most is whether it is good for the flourishing of a human person and of a, and a community of which that person is a part. I'm a conservative in that way. I think we overvalue choice in thinking about legitimacy. The most legitimate institutions in our lives are not the ones that are most chosen by us. They're not simply voluntary. They're the ones that are most important to our flourishing. The first of those is family. I think religion is often one of those. And maybe religion is chosen, but it's not really chosen right. for most people. It has obligations. It imposes obligations on us, even though we didn't choose it. And to my mind, that does not take away from its legitimacy at all. But before a person can sort of choose wisely when it comes to which institutions to join, they have to have a proper understanding of institutions, which means it's those unchosen Yes institutions that are particularly crucial because they're formative in how we think about institutions generally. If you're raised in a family where the family, I mean, nobody sits around talking about their family as an institution right, other than maybe sure. the royal family. But if your life in a family or in a, a religious faith or some other unchosen and truly formative community of your upbringing, if that 
sort of instills in you yeah. a sense of of these responsibilities and duties, that then is the seedbed. Yeah, it, it helps you see that constraints can be enabling and empowering. Yeah. That having limits is the first step in having real power in the world. That's not obvious. I think we can only learn that through experience in institutions that are not chosen, the ones that really shape us, that really form us in our most formative parts of life. And I think bringing that into your life as a citizen in a free society where you have a lot of choices and a lot of options and recognizing that choice is not, in fact, the first ingredient in being a free and capable person, but responsibility is the first ingredient. Again, it doesn't come naturally, but too bad. It's true. Yeah, I just want to quickly ask about institutions in need of renewal and what tests they might have to pass or fail in order to meet that qualification. What's, what's the diagnosis of an institution that needs renewal or upheaval? How do you see that? Yeah. Well, there's no easy answer to that, but I think that the institutions in our society that are healthiest and also are most trusted are the ones that are, in fact, unabashedly formative, that make demands on you and say, in order to be you know, a working scientist, you have to follow this way of life and this way of thinking. If you don't do that, you're just not part of this. The military is a great exception to our loss of confidence in institutions. And I don't think that's because it has, you know, big bombs. I think that's because it produces men and women who are clearly better for having been part of it. That's an institution that's functional and strong. It has its own problems, of course, every institution does. But the institutions that we see as truly weak and in need of reform and renewal are the ones who just don't play that formative function who have fallen apart into pure platforms. We see that a lot in our politics. In some ways, you see it in some of the professions, in the academy, in the media. I think you can tell where those places are, where institutions just lack the self-confidence and the insistence on certain kinds of, of, of demands and requirements. And those institutions need to be renewed, need to be rethought. Maybe there's a need for new institutions to provide for new functions in our society. There's such a thing, after all, as building institutions, not just rebuilding them. But I think where you see it is where there there seems to be a lack of formative self-confidence like that. You know, one of the most recent famous stories of institutions f- forming people comes from a book by our friend J.D. Vance, right? Yeah. Hillbilly Elegy, right. where he talks about there's a story of, of family trouble and breakdown and a troubled economy and a troubled time. But his path forward from it higher education, law school, the military, was it, now I'm trying to think, was he, was he in the military, was ROTC? Yeah, he was in the, he was in the Marines between college and, and law school. Right. And then going on to work in, in institutions like a law firm. It's really, he doesn't phrase it in these terms, but it seemed to me that, that one of the real morals of the story there was how these institutions, especially higher education and the military, were key to his, his success. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that book is a story about institutional failure and institutional success. He found himself searching for formative institutions, for someone to tell him what to be and how to be. I think a lot of Americans are finding themselves in that situation now. That's one way to understand what seems like a crisis of sociality, a crisis of isolation and, and fragmentation, alienation. It's that we don't have obvious objects for loyalty and belonging. And in different parts of our lives, I think there are ways that stronger institutions could help us have more of those. Well, let's talk about constitutional and governing institutions now, specifically for the rest of our, of our conversation. Mm-hmm. 
as a lawyer, I tend to think of constitutionalism first and foremost as the words on the page. Yeah. You've done a lot of work trying to cure me of that. Uh, <laughs> not that the words aren't important. Of course they are. Yes. But it's that the Constitution itself is a framework of institutions. So the yeah. framers thought in institutional terms, not just in instituting a constitution, but in instituting a constitution of institutions. Yes. To what extent does American modern American constitutionalism sort of get away from that vision? Well, I like that you use the word framework there. I think that's the right way to think about the Constitution. The Constitution is a framework. It's, in fact, several different kinds of frameworks. One kind is legal. The Constitution is a legal document. It's a, it's a sort of super statute. It, it's written down. It's intended to create a set of, of formal rules. Those rules, because they are written, can be interpreted and applied in real situations. Those applications can be interpreted by judges in ways that are binding. The Constitution is law in that sense. It's a legal framework. It's also a policymaking framework, right? The Constitution is a way to enable a government to meet certain public needs, to raise revenue and spend it, to create what we now would call programs and policies. The Constitution was created because its predecessor, the Articles of Confederation, was inadequate as a policy framework. It didn't let the government work and the Constitution does. The Constitution is also a political framework. It creates an arrangement of powers that results in a regime with a certain kind of character, an ethic, a kind of civic spirit. To be a constitutionalist is to, is to be a champion of that regime. But the Constitution is also an institutional framework. It's a set of interlocking institutions with distinct characters. It's not that there's just all this government power and the Constitution divides it in three so that it's safer. It divides it between a legislature and an executive and judiciary. And those are different. They're different precisely in institutional terms. Each of them has a role to play. Each of them is supposed to take a different kind of shape, to have a different kind of ethic, a different kind of integrity of its own. The, the legislative branch really establishes frameworks for the future the executive acts within those frameworks in the present. The judiciary interprets those actions after they've happened. It looks to the past and judges it. Those are different ways of being. They're different ways of acting. And I think the separation of powers is not just a division of power. It really is a channeling of power through three very different institutional frameworks. And it is important to understand the Constitution in those terms and not just as a pure set of rules, a legal document, it is also an institutional framework. Yeah, it creates at the federal level alone, three branches of government, really even more than that when you start subdividing Congress into yeah. two houses, creating different kinds of people making decisions in different ways from yeah. one another. It, it conveys, I think, a really deep understanding of the ways that institutions function as forms. Each of them has a different shape. Power moves in different ways. It creates different kinds of incentives. And as a result of that, each of them is going to function in a different kind of way as a means of, of, of channeling government power. I think there's a very profound institutionalism in the way the Constitution is meant to work. Yeah, in my field of, of administrative law, it's too often take for granted that we're just talking about dividing up who gets to decide what when. Yeah. But what's missed is it fundamentally changes the nature of how the decision will be made and yep. therefore it changes the nature of the decision. Absolutely. Because of the, because of the nature of the institution, the, the work that Congress does, for example, is inherently plural work. It is, it is the work of accommodation, of, of reaching compromises 
in the framing of frameworks. The work the president does is active. It is action in the world, in the present. It could only possibly be done by one person. The work that the judiciary does is almost intellectual work. It's interpretive work. And these are just different things. There's no way that one could do the work of the other, really. And so the separation of powers is not just a way to divide power for the safety of the governed. It is really a way to channel it through different forms with different aims in mind. One institution that we don't really think about in institutional terms anymore from our constitution is electoral college. Yeah. Right, as originally envisioned and as originally practiced, it was a real an actual institution of sorts, yeah. right? Yeah, was, James Caesar at UVA says it's the fourth institution created by the by the by the framers. Yeah, it's fascinating. Every every four years, it sort of emerges. It's convened anew with the with the elected delegates. It makes its decision, and then it goes away. We now think of the electoral college as sort of an accounting device. Yeah, right. And the way we've changed the, the way that change then has changed the way we think about what role the electoral college now plays. Debates about whether to even keep it at all. Our friend yeah. Michael Yulman passed away months ago, and he famously helped to save the Electoral College as a young congressional staffer. In fact, the latest issue of National Affairs right. has a beautiful reflection on this by, by Krista Muth. But one of the challenges for Mike Yulman in the 1970s and anybody defending the Electoral College today is that because it doesn't play this, it doesn't carry out its work in the same institutional way. Mm-hmm. It's seen as mostly just an accounting device, so you have to you have to defend it in terms of well, we don't want your majority rule. We want a little bit of a check on on just basic majority rule. Yeah, it doesn't. To, the, the electoral college lacks an existence as a real institution. Yeah, there, there's actually a place oddly in the Federalist where Hamilton expresses real skepticism about that kind of institution, yeah. and it's in Federalist 65 and thinking about impeachment powers. Yeah where he considers the possibility of just creating a special impeachment court. What if we set up this system and it would consist, I think, in his mind of state legislators who are called together for a federal impeachment trial and it's separate from Congress, it's separate from the Supreme Court because they could be an independent judiciary. And he rejects that idea because that institution wouldn't have an existence all the time. And as a result, it, it wouldn't really be able to establish itself as a genuine institution. It wouldn't be able to establish its power. It wouldn't get the kind of reverence of the public. I've always thought that you could read that criticism as a criticism of the Electoral College, which only exists once every four years. It doesn't really, the people who work within it don't really understand themselves as part of it. And over time, it just became nothing. It's just an expression of, they don't really have to meet, right? The Electoral College now is just a formula. I don't think that was the intent of the framers, but I, I think Hamilton's insight about impeachment suggests to us why it became that very quickly. I think so. Well, it, in Federalist 51, Madison famously said, ambition will counteract ambition, or it must be made to counteract ambition, and the interests of the man will be attached to the rights of the place. It's very much an institutional view. It's easy to think about that in terms of the presidency, right? The president identifying with the powers of his office. We have just a few minutes left, and I hate to raise these questions with just a few minutes to go, but let's talk a little bit about Congress and the court, Yeah, an institutional view of Congress or an institutional view of the court. If a, a member of Congress newly elected comes to you and asks for advice on, on how to think of his, his or her job in institutional terms, what would you say? Well, you know, when Madison wrote those words, I think he took it to refer to Congress at least as much as to the president. Mm-hmm. And... Madison had the expectation that Congress would be very protective of its prerogatives, extremely ambitious, and intent on its strength as an institution. I think you'd have to say now 
that the core problem our system is experiencing is that Congress lacks that institutional ambition, both because its members have more of a partisan ambition that often is channeled through the presidency or against it, and because their ambition is also channeled through a kind of media and political environment that encourages them to think of themselves as performers in in a theater of politics. They don't think of themselves first and foremost as legislators with authority, responsibility, and, and real prerogatives. It happens once in a while. We saw just recently Senator Mike Lee come out of a briefing by the intelligence community and basically just go nuts yelling about how ridiculous it was that they were telling Congress what to do and how to think. This is the briefing on, on Iran. On Iran, yeah. You know, I listened to that and I thought, this is Madisonian. This is what should happen when the presidency treats the Congress with not enough respect. And it doesn't happen nearly enough. I think we would be very well served now by a Congress that had much more self-respect and thought of itself as the key institution in our system to a much greater degree. But it's become difficult and members don't think that way. The courts, I think, do have more of a sense of self, more of a sense of, of institutional dignity. They haven't quite as much turned into platforms for moralistic performance. You see that, of course, from judges now and then. But I think Madison was right that our, for our system to work, it requires that kind of pride of place. Well, just one more word about Congress. We often joke about how Congress has lost its institutional ambition. All right, ambition, counteracting ambition today is, is you know, my ambition to get on Morning Joe versus your ambition right. to get on Fox and Friends and we'll counteract each other. But in a way, Congress is... The members of Congress, their approach to politics, their approach to governance, their performative approach, in a way, I think it still does actually confirm Madison's view. Members put disproportionate amounts of time and energy into the oversight side of their work, whether in hearings or on TV, precisely because past Congresses gave so much power to administrative agencies and the executive branch that in a way, Congress created a new right for itself, a right of oversight in the application of those. And I look at that story as a sort of a cautionary tale that sometimes an institution might change itself mm-hmm. accidentally by, by changing its own structural incentives. Yeah. Congress passed these broad delegations of power. Now Congress has more right of oversight. And over time, that becomes more politically valuable, the oversight side of things, rather than the... Well, I think that's true. But, you know, in order to bring the system back into balance, Congress has to really recover precisely its institutional sense, by which I mean it is a legislature. A legislature is not an oversight institution. A legislature is the first mover. Now, Congress isn't always going to be the first mover, and Hamilton saw that clearly. There are times when presidents have natural advantages, but we've given presidents advantages in what are really legislative situations. And for Congress to think of itself as an observer of the president, like everybody else in our politics, is very damaging to the way our system ought to work. I think that there's a real need for Congress to rediscover what it means to be a legislative institution. It means starting from the blank page, from a goal working through a process of compromise and conciliation toward a framework that is then imposed on the executive. Very few members of Congress think that's their job now. And when conservatives think of reform, for example, in in my line of work, I've often proposed regulatory reforms, more checks and balances within administrative agencies. The more I've thought about this in institutional terms, the more I've worried that things like, say, the Regulatory Accountability Act, which would 
require agencies to go through all these different steps before proposing a rule. We're actually asking the agencies to become even less like an executive and even more like a legislature in terms of transparency, deliberation, checks and balances, rather than Hamiltonian energy, unity, and secrecy. Yeah. Obviously, we live in a, in a world of second bests because these agencies have already been given so much power. But I have to admit, my own thinking on regulatory reform has been recalibrated a little bit out of worry that in some ways, by trying to solve some problems, we may make yeah. these other institutional problems Yeah, I worse. think there's a need for, for more blunt solutions in some ways. Yeah. You know, in a sense, the administrative state exercises legislative power without a legislative shape. It isn't formed like a large group of generally representative members who compromise with each other and negotiate. But the job that it's been given is a job that belongs to such an institution to a legislative institution. And that means it's doing legislative work outside of a legislative institutional shape. And there's a huge legitimacy problem there. I don't think you can really solve that by making sure that administrative agencies go through more hoops. Yeah. I think that work just has to be done in a more legislative setting. Yeah. One last question about the courts. You said a moment ago that it's in some ways easier for judges to think of their work in institutional terms. That's true in some sense, but in another sense, I think it's harder for judges to think in institutional terms. When your job as a judge is to interpret the law and then offer your interpretation, restricting yourself to that job is in, is in a sense institutional. Mm -hmm. But once you're there and you're interpreting the law and announcing that interpretation, you aren't thinking much about what it means to be a judge. You're doing a job in the same way that the same judge before he was a judge was doing that job as a lawyer, maybe in the executive branch, maybe in private practice. You're just yeah. interpreting law. Well, so in some ways, what an institution is, is a framework of rules and norms and practices and habits. I think there's a particular power in an institutional structure that imposes a set of rules on a decision-making process, right? That's what the scientific method does for scientists. That's what we think of as journalistic ethics does for journalists. It's what a lot of professional ethics is about. Judges, more than legislators, more than the executive branch, have recourse to a set of expectations, to a set of standards and practices that I think does allow them to have a kind of institutional responsibility, even if they're not altogether explicit in thinking of themselves as belonging together to a, to, a, to a whole. Throughout this conversation, you keep referring back to the scientific community and scientific yeah. institutions. That's interesting to me. Your first books were on science and the role of science. Right? Yeah. I think science is an interesting example of how to exercise legitimate authority outside of democratic institutions in our society. It's not authority in the sense of legal, formal, political authority, but expertise, trusted knowledge, those are the kinds of things that we have real trouble with now in America. We have enormous trouble trusting experts, believing in specialized knowledge. And I think processes like the scientific method that allow people to turn their humility into a source of pride are one way that institutions can be enormously powerful in overcoming some of the challenges of living in a democratic society. Very quickly, before we're kicked out of the studio, to end on an optimistic note, if there is one, Thinking of the Constitution or constitutional republicanism as an institution in and of itself and the American people as its constituents or its adherents, how can the American people rededicate themselves, recommit themselves to constitutional republicanism, practically speaking, in the sense that we as citizens 
would be shaped and refined by it. Yeah. Well, I'm a conservative, so optimism doesn't come naturally to me, but hope does. Try my best. Um, I, and I, I, am, I am very hopeful about America. And hope, hope doesn't mean you just expect good things to happen. It means that you believe the resources are there for good things to happen. I think our system, both because of our shared history and because of the, the structure of our political life together, gives us a lot of resources for renewal, for rebuilding, for bringing together our society around shared ideals. And I think those resources are there for us. It seems to me the first step toward improving things is seeing that they're broken. And in some ways, we actually have trouble seeing that things are broken in an institutional sense. I think if we do see it that way, then the, the desire to do better can itself become a political force that helps our politicians, our judges, others think constructively, think institutionally, think in terms of responsibility. And we each can also do that ourselves, wherever we are, in whatever institutions we function. Those are first steps, but they add up. Well, the book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you, all of you, for joining us for another episode of Unprecedential. We hope you'll join us again next time. into your mic at a comfortable distance. I'm speaking into my mic now from a very comfortable distance. Excellent. Stay there. Dr. Levin. <laughs> All right. Distances are always comfortable, but don't call me doctor. <laughs> you worked hard for that degree. Oh, please. Okay. You should use that if people ever call you Mr. Levin. You should say, please, my father was Mr. Levin. Call me doctor. <laughs>